Welcome to the House of Surgery, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. In this series, you'll hear from and about surgeons in all specialties, in all practice configurations, and in all locations, their success stories, advice, challenges they've overcome, and words of inspiration as they serve their patients with quality, integrity, and professionalism, and strive to heal all with skill and trust. This episode features Dr. David Hoyt, who was executive director of the ACS for 12 years until his retirement at the end of 2021. Dr. Hoyt delivered the Martin Memorial Lecture at Clinical Congress 2022, providing an overview of the ACS's historical commitment to patient care and quality and describing how science and data are the foundation for how surgeons will treat patients going forward. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily those of the American College of Surgeons. Enjoy the program. Thank you, Dr. Oktala uh, and the urology uh, group for the honor of giving them a memorial lecture this year. Having ended my tenure as executive director of the college, many things have passed through my mind, and I'd like to share some of these thoughts for a few minutes. Now, this is how we view ourselves according to our, our values. The interaction with a patient at the bedside, you can see the young surgeon holding the patient's hand. The, the, the patient is very happy. However, it's quite popular today to be cynical, polarizing, talk about burnout. A recent study has shown that measurable symptoms of burnout in healthcare workers has increased from 38% in 2020 to 62% in 2021. We're in some ways witnessing a transformation of our culture, our values, and our definition of human interaction. Now, the condition of the world has changed. Some might describe it like the fog of war, or it's referred to as a VUCA moment, where there's volatility, uncertainty, complexity, or some would say chaotic, and it's ambiguous. And this is due to so many things, such as access, insurance coverage, affordability, achieving that target of high quality and high reliability. One of the points I try, I'm going to try and make this morning, though, is that we've lost to a certain extent the authenticity of why we all went into this, and we've got to find a way to rediscover that and reestablish that. Many of you have probably read this book, but if you've read Lencioni's book, change causes uncertainty, it causes distrust, and resistance. And the problem is, if we let that happen to us, lose trust, then we are at risk of lowering our standards. If you lose trust, you're at risk of lowering your standards. Think about that. We're all hardwired to resist change as one of our basic physiologic responses. I don't know what to do. I can't mess up. I'm freaking out. I'm lost. Each of those are hardwired in a portion of the brain that basically guides us through the day. And when we're challenged with change, those are the centers that disrupt. The irony, however, of that resistance is that it creates the dynamic tension that fosters innovation. 
It's very much what we want as long as we do it positively. It engages our surgeon members to better serve their patients, and the opportunity right now has never been greater. How we choose to explore this opportunity will determine our future. The cycle of change follows the same steps articulated by Dr. Kubler-Ross over 50 years ago in her book, Death and Dying. There's a phase of disbelief, then anger, depression, acceptance, and a new norm. We as physician leaders have seen this in our patients. We need to create real solutions for our colleagues to restore the joys of our profession. We need to become students of change. This morning, I want to celebrate this opportunity and present it to you as an antidote to our current wellness dilemma, or as our immediate past president, Dr. Freischlag, has said, to sow hope. I'll do this through the lens of personal experience, as Julius Caesar said, the teacher of all things. Now, let's start with the basic philosophic reasoning which Franklin Martin and Jonathan Bauman, who really doesn't get much credit as he deserves for partnering with Dr. Martin to start our organization. They were the founders of our values that we articulate today as serving all with skill and trust. This is what motivates us as surgeons, whether we're getting up to care for somebody in the middle of the night, striving to develop an innovation or research solution, working to show a resident or a colleague how to achieve a new skill, or advocating for our healthcare system to do the right thing. Both Franklin Martin and John Bowman believe the college should serve a higher purpose and not just be another surgical organization. Now, recent psychology has evolved from the Freudian and Delian foundations, which m many of which have been proved wrong. Uh, but <clears throat> the concept was we were motivated by pleasure or acquisition of power. A much more modern view is articulated by uh, Dr. Maslow. He actually did that on sabbatical from Brandeis right in La Jolla, about uh, 10 miles up the coast. And he sat there and came up with this concept of Maslow's pyramid. And what he basically said is that we're all working toward achieving a state of well-being dependent upon our needs at a particular time. When you're young, it's about uh, love from your family as you go through school. It's about achieving certain goals. And we follow that hierarchy throughout our, our entire career. It's also important to shift to the concept of positivity. And very simply, as uh, shown in this book by uh, Dr. Glenn, what kind of attitude do you bring in the, in, in the morning which side of the line do you, do you start out with? Where do you stay during the day? This is something that we can control, and it's perhaps one of the most important things as we move through this era of change. Now, an individual that I think has, has uh, not been uh, appropriately promoted, I had the opportunity to read his book this summer. And Viktor Frankl was a leading psychiatrist in Vienna when Hitler rose to power. As, prominent, as a prominent academician, he had the opportunity to go to the United States, but with elderly parents and his belief in the Ten Commandments, honor thy father and mother, he decided to stay and look after them. 
As a Jew, he and his family were ultimately imprisoned in Nazi concentration camps. He witnessed his family die. And then he spent the next three years trying to understand in a concentration camp the basis of survival in these worst of human circumstances. And he summarized this in a book which has sold 16 million copies. This summarizes pretty much what his book says. Life is never made unbearable by circumstances, but only by the lack of meaning and purpose. Those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. It's very popular today, Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why. I would argue that Viktor Frankl was the first to really articulate that. Now, another person that was concerned with the stress of change and, and uh, in this case, the Korean War, was a surgeon again, Richard Hooker. He, after medical school and the beginning of his residency, uh, was drafted and went to the Korean War and served there for several years. And when he came back, he started to write up his experiences and really emphasized the importance of maintaining a sense of humor. He wrote a book, that book uh, became a movie, that movie became the famous TV show, MASH. It is the most watched TV show ever, other than the Super Bowl. In fact, the entire plumbing system in New York City shut down after the opening series from all the toilets flushing. Finally, a third individual I want you to be aware of is uh, <coughs> Sebastian Unger, who is a war correspondent and was recently in, in the, in the uh, Afghanistan war and suffered PTSD. And once he came through that, he wrote a book, Tribe. And what he tries to describe there, I think is very relevant to what we as surgeons are going through right now. And he said that individual contentment is really dependent upon competency, mastery of our work, we all know that as surgeons, autonomy, authenticity in our lives, we're all feeling threatened by that, and then finally, community. When you take these all three together, basically purpose, autonomy, and a sense of humor are essential for our professional satisfaction. And our founder, Dr. Martin, understood this as described in Gordon Telford's re recent book. Now let's see how these principles then relate to our college and its programs. We've heard a nice summary of what's going on from Dr. Turner. And I want to go through those and, and point to you, particularly the younger fellows, the opportunity to engage with the American College of Surgeons as a way to define purpose in your professional lives and derive personal joy. When I was a medical student, first year I got the New England Journal delivered to my mailbox with a letter from Franz Inkelfinger, the editor at the time, and he was trying to encourage medical students to start reading at a very early age. And what he said was, we're like a department store. We have something for everyone. And the American College of Surgeons is very similar to that. There's something that every one of you can find to become engaged in. Now let's start with the quality programs. You've heard a summary of where those are going. 
And in fact, at the heart of our, our decision to become a doctor and surgeon is a desire to help people, like caring for them, diagnosing their condition, prioritizing their care, relieving their pain and suffering, and expressing empathy. We all strive to do the best, but given the complexity of care today and the scope of responsibility, the variability of our training and experience and the major cost of healthcare delivery, there is by definition variability and bias in what we do. Our founders had the same problem during the last century. They saw the value of consistency and in their forming of the ACS, they used case review to judge member suitability. The thought of a board exam and objective measurement of competencies was at least 25 years away. But Ernest Codman articulated the end results concept. Many would point to this as the beginning of the quality movement. And John Bauman, under Dr. Martin's support and leadership, persisted and founded the original hospital standards in 1917. You can see one of the original certificates here at Harborview Hospital. That original program became what was the Joint Commission, and it created a framework that is essential for measuring consistency, optimizing resources, and using peer review. This transformed from an opinion and eminence-based healthcare delivery system to measurement and outcomes. Now, over the last several years, uh, we worked with the leaders and the staff to develop a model to try and articulate what, what quality is all about. And this is that model. It's, it's been tested many times and it stands up. And it starts with creating standards for care for a particular disease. It moves then to building out the infrastructure to support that, staffing, et cetera. It, from the beginning, anticipates the, the need to measure performance and sets up a database, registries to do so. And then finally, the real assurance to the public comes from our external peer review verification process. I had the opportunity to see this transform trauma care from a disorganized response of in to injured patients into a well-organized system with improved outcomes. It also created, I would argue, the only system that is truly payer blind. But it's a good model. Serving all with skill and trust. Watching this happen from the time I was a resident was so powerful that 13 years ago when I had the opportunity presented to me by Dr. Britt to pursue the job as a director, executive director this experience is what motivated me to want to try and, and, and scale this in other areas. Incredible personal satisfaction from that. For young surgeons, I'd encourage you to participate in the college's quality programs as one of the most satisfying experiences you'll ever have. Our excellent staff and our leadership, Dr. Koh, will keep up with you. Now today we have over 20 programs and you've seen those reviewed. There's several new programs in particular expanding the specificity of this. People concern over the burden of preparation and even the cost, but the return on investment is improved care with reduced cost. 
Quality mortality is, is dropped. Bariatric surgery care has never been safer or better. There are many examples. How these programs are offered in the future and found of value to the payers and the public will evolve, and the college obviously has plans to uh, uh, pursue that. Most recently, the Thrive Program, which is really a collaboration with Harvard Business School, has been founded as an attempt to learn how to actually measure the cost of delivering surgical care. And if we can rebalance the economics of surgical care delivery when coupled with our quality programs, we allow the surgical community to lead us to the true value and protect the value of our contributions made by surgeons. Now, several years ago, uh, Dr. Koh and I and others worked together to uh, create a summary of what we had learned about quality and the optimal resources for surgical quality and safety was a result. And a new quality program assessing all the quality aspects of a hospital or a system has uh, been written and tested, and you just heard about that. We've looked at 25 hospitals and systems, and what's emerging is that the leaders of those systems are totally focused on patient care needs, and they create a culture that aligns the staff to that end. Now, that's a very easy phrase to say. Some of you may actually be fortunate enough to work in an institution that, that functions like that, but many are struggling with that. And creating a change in culture is actually very, very challenging. Culture involves, evolves with performance measurement, continuous improvement, and high reliability. And as leaders use that as an aspirational goal, they need to remember how that occurs. And the famous philosopher Nietzsche said, you can't do it by education alone. You've got to enable new ideas and allow virtue of those ideas to be assigned to those contributors. That's a long way to say we really need to encourage young people to participate that. We need to listen to their ideas, and when they have a good idea, really promote them, because that's what will evolve our culture toward what we're trying to get to. Finally, as Dr. Britt said several years ago, there's no quality without access. As we struggle with the whole issue of racism, DEI, et cetera, and remember our responsibility to serve all. One of those tests will be if 10, 15 years from now, we don't see access disparity. So let's keep that in mind as we go forward. Now I want to sh shift a little bit to education because this is arguably the other most important thing we do other than patient care. Education is the way in which care is enabled and progressively improved. Think of laparoscopy. That was out there. People demonstrated its feasibility. How did we transform the culture of surgical care to minimally invasive surgery? It was through education. The Hippocratic Oath reminds us of that responsibility to teach each other. And in addition to patient care, as I've said, it's perhaps the most important human activity we do. 
We have recently created an academy. And Plato and Aristotle were really the ones that, that, that came up with the concept of an academy or a college. And what they realized is that in a free society or a republic, you had to depend upon mature, wise leaders. They tried it for a while with young people, and it actually sort of failed. So they created an academy where, you, where senior people who were going to be leaders could be brought along, matured, have progressive education during their leadership development. That was the idea behind it, and that's the kind of thing we now have in this academy. Now, education uh, preserves and enables our experience. Surgical education has really been at the forefront of our college identity. And just think of the origins from the clinical place learning and our original clinical uh, congress. Participation by either teaching or learning is one of the most purposeful benefits we can devise from our professional organization. I know that's been true for me personally. And when you, we just heard about the CSAP program and its 50th anniversary, look at the array of new programs that Dr. Sachteva and his team have built over the last 15 or 20 years. It's truly amazing. I want to spend a moment talking about this because it's so important. And there's been a huge change in residency education from the legacy of Bill Roth brought to this country by Halstead, complete submersion into clinical practice environment while putting off major life events like marriage. Those, those are obsolete. But Mayo, Charles Mayo said it well about 100 years ago. The educational product of necessity will be as it always has been, dependent on the ability of the instructor and the teachers to inspire the capacity of its students to emulate. We do know, though, that there's a problem. And the college joined with the American Board of Surgery and the ACGME and studied this in the first trial and now the second trial is trying to find solutions. But we know that there are concerns with resident burnout. We know that there's a high rate of discrimination, particularly against women. We need to fix that. The college has responded to a certain extent by at least starting a template for us to refine postgraduate medical education and surgical care. And this so-called gold book, The Optimal Resources for Surgical Education and Training, is a template. It uh, needs uh, tremendous implementation, but again, as an opportunity for those of you that are feeling burned out, get engaged, offer a solution, offer a way in which we can enrich the training of our uh, legacy following us. Another example has, again, been alluded to this morning, but I want to just tell you what it meant to me coming up as a resident. And this is the effect of an education program on quality. We don't often talk about those two being fused. ATLS started over 40 years ago. It was transformative of trauma care in this country. It's a true innovation. This is before there were EMS systems. There was no 9-11. 
there was no staffed MD emergency room, and trauma care was very undeveloped. Through the efforts of several dedicated surgeons, the ATLS course was created, and now 40 years later, we have an organized trauma system where you can argue that care is very organized and practiced pretty much the same way throughout this country. So how did that happen? Think about how that happened. What ACLS did is it created a language and an organized sequence of priorities and a simulation environment for learning and expanded to include EMS, nursing, and all the other people that touched that patient. The educators realized the importance of creating a training program that emphasized actual learning and that worked when put into practice. Another example, to get pathology students to see exactly what he was seeing, Virchow created a microscope on a track so he could pass the microscope down without distorting the image and allow several students to see what he was seeing so he could make a point, so he could make sure that they were learning. That's a master educator. ATLS is now in 170 countries. It's been proposed for a Nobel Prize twice without success. But if you think of its impact, it certainly is deserving. My own experience with ATLS as a resident was to suddenly have clarity that there was an ordered response and a way to go about taking care of a trauma patient. And it profoundly influenced uh, my career as well. Finally, uh, research. Uh, this is probably the least developed area in some regards in the American College of Surgeons, but uh, I, I don't actually think so. I think it's, it's one of the most uh, important. This is a wonderful book, and I recommend to every one of you. It's a new book by David Schneider, an orthopedist, called The Invention of Surgery. And he takes us through the history of surgery with a detailed description of the knowledge gaps and the barriers that presented and the critical research breakthroughs that transformed surgery to what it is today. He starts with Vesalius and anatomy. He then goes through all the major subspecialties, such as organ-based pathology, understanding infection, understanding anesthesia, et cetera, et cetera. Our current frontier really is tissue engineering, and our own Dr. Atala is the true giant in that field. Now, as you look at this and read through his analysis of the, the history of surgical development, there's several recurrent themes that move forward and the type of people it takes. And I, and I mention this because many of you are probably thinking about being an aspiring investigator. The individuals leading these efforts stay focused on a problem. They accept rejection with resilience and are often observers of something that does not make sense, but may be an opportunity to understand and open a whole new way of thinking. Alexander Fleming was unable to produce penicillin at scale. However, his observation of a neglected petri dish that had been left unwashed where mold prevented bacteria from growing gave him an opportunity to think differently about living molecules and led to the concept of antibiotics. 
Halstead, knowing of, of Bill Ross' successes and failures in intestinal surgery, was concerned that they could do better. And he went to the laboratory and persisted in defining the submucosa, emphasizing precise tissue handling. And it's from that a major breakthrough occurred. And even uh, in institutionally, at Johns Hopkins, Dr. Welch, the first dean, as they were building the new hospital, made sure that there was an institute, a, a laboratory, a pathology institute built first, so that when the new hospital opened, there would be research immediately available. This was truly a first in American medicine. Now, <clears throat> perhaps the thing that the college does best is create forums for exchange with uh, meetings or publications so that we can really share an idea with each other and allow the, the, the thought to, to then progress. And again, many, many examples of this. Lister, Pasteur, and Koch actually worked together remotely uh, in terms of understanding what bacteria were and ultimately uh, uh, solving that problem. Halstead, again, learned of the use of cocaine and from that then developed regional anesthesia. Today, research is often focused on publication or academic ascension, but the joy of discovery per se, positive or negative, is a stimulating activity unto itself. The opportunity to teach research to younger surgeons is like watching a child grow. One point to be made that I personally uh, uh, endured is that a new therapy ultimately needs to be validated in a clinical trial. And several personal experiences ended without results that we had hoped for. Great disappointment. However, the experience was academically and personally satisfying and cleared up several issues, and I felt I had contributed. So I, again, I would challenge particularly the young people, get involved in, in research today, Basic research is still very alive. Translational clinical trials, outcomes research, and even health policy research. But, but take a chance, participate in even something like clinical trials for somebody that's in primarily clinical practice. You can engage your patients in research. Finally, we talk a lot today about voice, the movement toward for-profit medicine, the payer-driven attempts to lower costs has increased the need for surgeons to participate and maintain their voice. And with autonomy threatened and administrative complexity of practice excessive, moral erosion has contributed to so-called burnout. We need to show up, we need to show up with solutions, but the good news is our policy brand is third of all organizations that descend upon Washington. So we really need to take advantage of that. Working with other groups, as has been already mentioned today, and as the theme of this next year's uh, uh, college uh, initiatives under Dr. Ellison's leadership, really, really does work. And we need to participate and lead. This is not going to be quick, 
But one of the things we can do and we can do very well is tell our story. And um, to serve all with skill and fidelity, or the new phrase, skill and trust, is really at the heart of our message. I want to just come back before I end to this concept of culture. We've talked about burnout. We've talked about a lot of the causes of it. We've talked about what some people that have been in the most severe types of human conflict have learned about it and thought about it. But how do you then do something? And this is the concept of adaptive change. And if you have a situation where there's stress put on a system, a social system, in our case, the healthcare system, we can revert to being chaotic. We can all align to something that somebody tells us to do. But that, we're, we're wired to resist that. We don't, we don't, we're not comfortable with that. However, if you want to adapt, what you have to really do is take the time to sit down and engage people with new ideas, with fresh ideas, with different ideas, with diverse ideas. And it's from that melting pot of ideas comes the new adaptive change. And we all have to learn how to do that. Change management is going to be our solution, I think, to burnout. Now, another partner in this is the National Academy of Medicine. And they, for the last three years, and we were participants in this, have been looking at this from the entire health workforce well-being standpoint. And just two weeks ago, published a report that I recommend to you. And there's seven priority areas uh, in this report. The first is to create and sustain a positive work environment. Now that's a very easy thing to say. It's actually gonna require a lot of work. But it's, everybody agreed that that is the most important thing that we can do so we can get through a lot of these difficult problems. We need research, we need support for mental health issues, we need to address these complexities of compliance regulation, which goes back to our loss of trust, and we need to engage effective technology tools. None of this, though, today will not be, po will be possible if we don't recruit and retain a diverse and inclusive health core workforce. Finally, Tom Russell, uh, my predecessor, uh, and I talked a lot about this, the future of a surgeon. And basically, we're going to be involved in leading high-performance teams with the complexity of disease. Think of cancer, think of trauma, think of bariatric surgery. We need to use outcomes and science to determine how we treat patients going forward, and we need to be transparent with the public. This is what our professionalism status will do to reestablish trust. None of this, none of the things that I've talked about in the college that I hope you will engage in would be possible without the leadership you see on the stage here or the staff who are behind the scenes making this whole, whole thing work. And it was an incredible privilege for me to be able to work so closely with these people over the last 12 years. Again, have a great meeting and uh, thank you very much for this, this honor.
Thank you for joining us on the House of Surgery podcast, brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag House of Surgery. You can learn more about the American College of Surgeons, its members, programs, products, and services at facs.org. 